We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. One guest. On the show today, Sam Fortier will join us from the Washington Post. Also, uh, there was a story over the weekend about a quarterback in the NFL who started in one of the two championship games last year uh, that I found to be surprising and really intriguing in terms of his current situation. I will finish the show with that. That's what we call in the trade a tease. Although really in podcasts, you don't need teases because people can just fast forward ahead. Um, I did a podcast Saturday uh, night or Saturday evening after the game. Santana Moss was on it. If you haven't listened to it, I would urge you to go back and listen to it. Santana's great. Santana's also, and somebody made this point to me after listening to Santana with me on Saturday, that he's gotten so much better and so much more comfortable as an analyst, as a broadcaster, I totally agree. You know, I've done a lot with Santana over the years. We did, you know, occasionally the Channel 4 show together. Um, and, you know, early on, he was like a lot of players are when they first get into the media when their career is over. You know, they've got to figure it out. And he was still figuring it out. But he, I, I have watched him more and more. I've had him on shows I think he's um I think he's really really good and really insightful and by the way a hell of a nice guy uh, as well and not afraid not afraid to answer and and speak to the tough issues and even be critical you know which is important for former players it's hard for a lot of former players to be constructively critical but that's really the job when you're an analyst um, is to be positive when you really think it's positive, but to not fear being constructively critical when you think something um, isn't right. And I think uh, Santana's been really good at those things. Um, here in the open to the show, I'm going to read a few emails, and then I am going to talk a little bit about uh, a few things that I missed from Saturday and briefly mention the top 100 NFL network list of the best players in the NFL voted by the players. Um, there is a big omission in the top 50 that has a lot of you um, very angry. But the first full NFL preseason weekends in the books, you know, and the 
it's it's a different time um, for the NFL. I mean, everything be is big. You know, the off season's big, preseason's big. Even though it's a dreadful watch, uh, but the overreactions from the preseason weekend are really amusing to me. And for our team, for our team, excuse me, that was a hiccup, uh, not a burp. Um, for our team, and I might have the hiccups, and I may have to stop here uh, briefly. Um, but uh, our fan base, or what's left of it, um, it's amazing some of the reactions. Uh, yes, I have the hiccups right now. I could probably edit this right now, and I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to just pause for a moment, and I'm going to try to get rid of the, the hiccups, but I'll be right back. All right, I got rid of the hiccups, so I edited out all of the dead air. So I'm just leaving it in as it is. I wanted to say that some of the responses that I got to the game, to the reaction after the game, I mean, so many of you were so, so upset that I didn't include Carson Wentz as a player who had a great game. He didn't have a great game. He didn't have a terrible game. He didn't have a great game. But I wanted to read a few emails on this one came from Neil, not Neil in Rockville. Uh, Sheehan, the depth at tight end is obvious. None of their their top three played, but you can see with Rodgers and Hodges that this is a position of strength. I'm so excited with the job our personnel department is doing. Um, Okay. After a preseason game? I liked Rodgers and Hodges. I really like Rodgers, actually. And Logan Paulson gave us a heads up on that on Friday's show on Armani Rodgers, the former quarterback, college quarterback from Ohio, from Ohio University. But come on, Neil, man. It's a preseason game. What do you mean a position of strength? So excited with the job our personnel department is doing. We don't know anything yet. I like Logan Thomas a lot. I hope we don't see Rodgers or Hodges on the field because I really like Logan Thomas, and I think we're going to really like Cole Turner. But anyway, I don't know if it's a position of strength or not, nor do you. You might be right, but you're not right because of what they did in a preseason game. Uh, This from Joe. Gibson is done. They have to trade him now. He's clearly got a major fumbling problem, and he doesn't see the field. Get rid of him now. I love the people that say, the player's terrible. Trade him as if other teams don't know he's terrible. Now, I'm not using Gibson as an example because Gibson's not terrible. Um, But... I don't think Gibson is done. We're going to talk to Sam Fortier a lot about Gibson uh, when Sam joins us. Um, I, I, I clearly have seen all of the, this is why they drafted Robinson. And, you know, Ron Rivera had a very telling quote about uh, that I did not have on the Saturday podcast. This is what he said about Gibson's fumbling issues. Antonio's got to run harder. When he starts to shuffle and go sideways, that's when he struggles. You know, that's criticism. You know, there's no doubt that, um, you know, they drafted Brian Robinson Jr. for a reason. There was some concern about Antonio Gibson, not about his upside and not about what he could become. It's more about whether or not he will become that. 
Rivera also said about Antonio Gibson on Saturday night after the game, sometime, or Saturday afternoon, sometimes he tries to make a big play. Every play is designed to score, but when it's not going to score, you have to get what you can and try to make more out of it. That's when you run into trouble. You've got to understand, if it's not there, just stick my foot in the ground and get what I can and protect the ball. Ball security, as many people have said in the past, is job security. Yeah, I think Saturday's actually kind of a big game for Antonio Gibson against the Chiefs. Um, that was an email, uh, or that was a tweet from Joe. Um, this was also a tweet uh, from Kevin. Kevin, the trade back for Dotson's already the best trade this team has made in years. Sam Howell, Brian Robinson, Cole Turner. Uh, and then he went on to, you know, talk about various trades and why this one's going to be, how he had predicted it um, from the beginning. Uh, uh, fine. Kevin, you might be right, but you're not right after one preseason game. And you might be wrong because Chris Olave might turn out to be one of the great receivers in the history of the game. And if Jahan Dotson and all of these guys turn into just, you know, nice contributors instead of one of the greatest receivers in the history of the game, well, you don't know. You don't know what Alave is going to turn into. I mean, again, it's a, the preseason, people. Haven't we learned? I mean, it's unbelievable to me. You cannot start making these kinds of declarations after a preseason game. You do realize, right, that Sam Howell was pr- playing against like guys who aren't going to be in the league in two and a half weeks. So I, you know, I hope I liked the trade back. I like Jahan Dotson. I like uh, Cole Turner. Um, I like Brian Robinson. I'm not a massive fan of Sam Howell. I wasn't at Carolina, and I watched him a lot. A lot of you guys don't watch college football. I do. I was not a big fan of Sam Howell, as you might remember me talking about. I'm sure, I, of course I could be wrong. And maybe they found their future starter in Sam Howell. And maybe what we saw on Saturday was just the beginning, but... If he ends up being great, it's not because he was great or really good in the game on Saturday, which you could debate anyway. Um, He was playing against dudes that aren't NFL-caliber players for the most part. Uh, Lastly, I wanted to read this um, tweet from Leonard. Uh, And this, you know, speaks to my reaction to the Jason Wright tweet from the other day. Kevin, it sounded like you and the other reporters in town got bitch-slapped by Jason Wright with his tweet on Friday. He was just defending his starting quarterback from an unfair and savage setup question by the Channel 9 interviewer. Grow a pair! Exclamation point. By the way, Scott Abraham works for Channel 7, um, not Channel 9. Uh, Thank you, Leonard. For, for the tweet. You can tweet me, by the way, at Kevin Sheehan, D.C. Um, I, I mean, I guess I would start with this, Leonard. I would say that anybody that described Scott Abraham's questions as unfair and savage should really look in the mirror when you say to anybody, grow a pair. I mean, seriously? Savage? I'd love to live in your Nerf world. That's a Daryl from The Office reference when he said to Mike, Mike, you live in a nerfy kind of a world. Um, But seriously, dude, man up.
I mean, there was nothing wrong with those questions. Now, the intro, as I mentioned in my response to the Jason Wright tweet from Friday, the intro to the second question could have been finessed better, um, but you've got it backwards, Leonard. I wasn't triggered by the questions or by Jason Wright's tweet. Apparently, you were. The, cri- the criticism of Jason Wright from me had a lot less to do with the threat of denying access, you know, reporter access to Scott, um, because I don't, I don't, I, I'm not a reporter. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but it was more about that I thought he was overreacting by snapping back publicly the way he did to what was a fairly uneventful interview. It's the opposite of what you were tweeting me about. My response was, man, that was an overreaction to something that was pretty uneventful. And by the way, if he hadn't reacted to it, it would have been totally uneventful. And by the way, I believe, I really think this is true, if like national reporters have, had asked the same question or if like a former athlete had asked the question that way, I don't think we would have heard one word from it. I mean... You know, Carson Wentz, people, for those of you triggered by any criticism or any tough questions of Carson Wentz, as Leonard, you know, was, obviously, calling him savage. I mean, seriously, dude, you really need to grow a pair. But Carson Wentz got shown the door in back-to-back seasons by two decent franchises at extraordinary expense to both of those franchises. If you don't think he's going to be asked about those things, or even worse, if you think that if he is asked those things, that it's mean or insensitive or savage or unfair, you're really soft. Really soft. These were big boy questions in a big boy market and by the way, responded in a big boy way by Carson Wentz. Everything that came after that wasn't so big boy, including your dumb tweet. Uh, By the way, also, as I've mentioned before, I'm not a reporter. I love when people, and Leonard did not write this in his tweet, but I love when people will send me a note and say, Uh, Sheehan, just report the news. I don't care what your opinion is. Just report the news. Actually, just so everybody understands, there's a big difference between what Scott Abraham does and what Ben Standig does um, and what, you know, I do or, you know, uh, Galdi does or anybody that hosts any of these shows. The job description for a sports talk show host is to give opinions. That's the job. You know, to have opinions and to be passionate about your opinions and to have long-form conversations like you would with friends if you're at a bar talking sports. That's the job. I'm not a reporter that adheres to journalistic standards. The job description is actually the opposite of that. And I know most of you understand that, but I always get a kick out of the mention of reporters and be a reporter and be, uh, you know, journal journalistically, um, uh, behave with journalistic integrity. That's actually not the job. Now 
I am one that prefers to steer clear much of the time from personal attack versus professional attack when I am constructively attacking. Um, it's kind of the way I've been most of the time. You know, I would have phrased the intro to the second question to Carson Wentz a little bit differently. I would have. I wouldn't have said, they didn't want you, they didn't want you. I would have said something like, it didn't work out in Indy. It didn't work out in Philadelphia, that kind of thing. Um, But the bottom line is Carson handled it well, very well, and it was a non-thing that was made into a thing. That's all. And when they continue, if they didn't have a history of turning non-things into big things, it probably wouldn't have, you know, garnered a reaction from me and others uh, in, 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 as an aftermath. But they've got a history of turning things that should be positive or uneventful into much bigger things. I mean, they really, as I said the other day, went on the field, eliminate the unforced errors off of it, and things will change. They will. But anyway... Um, I wanted to uh, quickly um, mention, uh, before I get to this top 100 thing, that last year in the preseason, because I just went went back and made sure that this was uh, accurate. Last year in the preseason, Washington played their starters in the second preseason game, second of the three. Um, And then in the third preseason game against Baltimore, Ron rested all of the starters. So we may be on the verge Saturday at Arrowhead, by the way, as they are, you know, slamming drums and spearing the field and doing the tomahawk chop. How ironic. Um, But I think the game in Kansas City will be a game in which they'll play the starters. You know, Fitzpatrick, I think, in the second preseason game last year, played like three or four series, and then none of them played. I mean, Heineke didn't even play in the third preseason game. They were protecting him. So this is going to be it Saturday. I mean, I kind of love the fact that the preseason really, you know, gets shortened up here. I can't wait until it's a two-game preseason. Um, But um, I just wanted to point out that Saturday in Kansas City, if they stick with the same plan they had last summer during the first three-game preseason schedule – this Saturday will be the last time for the starters and the frontline players, and we won't see them again until September 11th against Jacksonville. Okay, one other thing to get to uh, here in the open. Actually, I wanted to mention one thing um, real quickly because I saw this right before I came uh, I went, came back into the studio to record the podcast today. So the um, uh, the NBA Christmas Day schedule is out. And, you know, the NBA has kind of owned Christmas Day, except when the NFL is played on Christmas Day. Uh, and it doesn't always, you know, line up where the NFL plays games on Christmas Day. Because if Christmas Day is like on a Wednesday or a Thursday, the NFL won't play games. But if the NFL or, or you know, Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, but if it's on a weekend, they'll play a game or two. And this year they've got a, a triple header scheduled for uh, Christmas uh, Day and night. Remember that, you know, that week, uh, and what is that? I think that's week f- 16. So it, it's the, um, it's not the next to last uh, 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 weekend of the season. It's the third to last um, weekend of the season. But on Christmas uh, Day, there's a triple header this year. 
Packers, Dolphins at 1, Broncos, Rams at 4.30, Bucks at Cardinals at night. It's Christmas Day is a Sunday. I mean, you've got Aaron Rodgers against the Dolphins. You've got Russell Wilson against the defending champs. And you've got Brady against, uh, against Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. <laughs> the NBA is going to be meaningless this Christmas Day. But the games are Bucks, Celtics, 76ers, Nets, uh, Knicks, Suns, Nuggets, Lakers, Mavs, Grizzlies, Warriors. And it's always a big day when the NBA announces their Christmas Day schedule. Last year, and I saw this tweeted out, the NFL played a doubleheader. They played Green Bay, Cleveland, and Indy, Arizona, because it was on a Saturday. And the first afternoon game, the Green Bay-Cleveland game, did 28.6 million viewers. The NBA game that it was up against did 5.1 million. And it was Golden State against Phoenix. And then the night game, Indy-Arizona, Carson Wentz played well that night, and they beat Arizona on Christmas night. Um, 12.6 million viewers watching the NFL, 5.7 watching the NBA. So this year, with Aaron Rodgers in the first game, with Russell Wilson and the defending champs in the second game, and Tom Brady in the nightcap against Kyler Murray, I mean, come on, the NBA is going to get absolutely creamed. Of course, we could get to that Christmas day, and maybe all those quarterbacks will be hurt and done. Who knows? Last thing, okay, um, of the day. Uh, the NFL Network started last night with their top 100 list. This is the list that comes out every time this year where the NFL players cast their votes to identify the top 100 players in the league entering the 2022 season. And because the um, uh, because Terry McLaurin's been such an off-season conversation with respect to you know where he ranks, etc., it doesn't look like he's going to be in the top 100. And why do I say that? Well, C.D. Lamb... Um, came in at, uh, um, hold on, where did he come in at on this list? He was in the 90s, I think. Um, C.D. Lamb came in at 95 on the list. 95, I don't see a massive difference between C.D. Lamb and Terry McLaurin in terms of what the players would would deem to be. I actually like Terry McLaurin. I've mentioned this before a little bit more than C.D. Lamb, but C.D. Lamb has yet to be a number one wide receiver target because which he will be this year with Amari Cooper gone, so who knows? Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that C.D. Lamb made the list, and I do think that Terry McLaurin should be maybe a little bit ahead of him on the list. But the bottom line is he's not going to be on this list because if you go all the way up to hold on, where is it here? Um, Mike Evans. Sorry, I'm slow in opening up this list. It's just sort of slow on the internet. Mike Evans is uh, somewhere between 51 and 60. And so I don't think he's going to be ahead of Mike Evans. That would be my guess. So Mike Evans came in at 53. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be ahead of, of Evans. I think Evans is a receiver I would take before McLaurin. So more likely than not, McLaurin's not going to be in the top 100. Now, when it's all done, and I don't know when the second, when the top 50 comes out, because they've only given you numbers 51 through 100, um, uh, we can you know go through the list and see what the players believe are the top receivers in the game. 
you know, we can check that out. Now, there is one Washington player on the list, and it's John Allen. John Allen came in at 88. Um, oh, here's, here's what's written, you know, on NFL.com. So now we know for sure Terry McLaurin's not on the list. John Allen at 88 is the only Washington player in the top 100. Allen's been a key part of the commander's defense since 2017 when he was selected with the 17th overall pick. The 27-year-old Alabama product registered nine sacks last season, earning his first Pro Bowl selection. Um, He's definitely a top 100 player. I think he should be higher than 88. I really do. Uh, But that will be the only player from Washington in the top 100 on the list, John Allen. By the way, I was also thinking about the game on Saturday. There are a couple of players, and John Allen's one of them. We don't need to see him. I don't think we need to see J.D. McKissick unless they think it's important for Wentz to have the players that he's going to have out on the field in the opener. And so if McKissick's out there for that purpose, I understand that. But we don't need to see John Allen. We don't need to see Montez Sweat. We don't need to see these some of these players anymore. Do we? We certainly don't need to see John Allen again. Don't risk any of the guys that you need. I do think it's a good test Saturday against the Chiefs, against Mahomes and company. You know, they went out there, um, uh, Mahomes did in their first preseason game, uh, and they ended up winning the game, uh, or losing the game, I'm sorry. They they got off to a quick start. They had a 14-0 lead at half, and then they lost 19-14. Again, the final scores of these games are ridiculous. But the Chiefs opening drive with Mahomes, 11 plays, 72 yards, touchdown. Uh, And that was it for him. Uh, He left the game. He was 6 of 7 for 60 yards and a touchdown. So if you want to put the first team defense out there against, you know, an incredibly explosive offense and, you know, debatably the best quarterback in the game – and you feel like they need the work, that's fine. I wouldn't disagree that they need the work. They need the work. They gave up three of three on third down on the opening drive, actually three of four after uh, Mayfield botched the second down snap, and that created the third and super long, which forced the field goal. But really it was kind of a self-destruction on Carolina um, in that drive. And, you know, they kind of picked up where they left off. Those were starters against starters because Carolina played their starters and the defense couldn't get off the field on three straight third downs. I did kind of like the the uh, pressure, though. I thought they got pretty decent pressure throughout. But, again, it's the preseason, no game planning, et cetera. All right, uh, Sam Fortier from the Washington Post next. And, actually, Sam revealed something that I didn't know about the game on Saturday. You'll hear that next right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This segment of the podcast presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag or MyBookie.com. Use my promo code, KevinDC, and they'll double your first deposit all the way up to $1,000. They've got all of your preseason lines. They've got all of your regular season prop bets available. They've got all of the week one lines for the NFL uh, that are up already. I did notice because I was on there earlier today, uh, the biggest line change so far is Buffalo. Buffalo is up to a two-and-a-half-point favorite in the opener at L.A. in the first game of the season. That game was minus uh, Buffalo minus one. Uh, I think maybe the health of Matt Stafford has something to do with it, uh, but Buffalo, a two-and-a-half-point road favorite in L.A. in SoFi for the regular season opener on Thursday night, uh, September 8th. MyBookie.com, MyBookie.ag. If there's anything written already, when you sign up in the promo code, erase it and write Kevin DC, and they'll double your deposit all the way up to $1,000. All right, joining us right now is Sam Fortier from the Washington Post. Sam, a reporter. Sam, a columnist for the Post, covers the team. Uh, He wrote two different columns, one on Saturday about the scene at FedEx Field for the first ever Commanders game, even though it was a preseason game, and then wrote a column yesterday about the team and its performance. And I want to start with that. We'll come back, Sam, to... Um, what the scene was like on Saturday to be there. But you wrote something that I had not read anywhere else, and I did not notice in watching the game. It may have been mentioned, but it sailed right over my head. And that is that the offensive coordinator, Scott Turner, changed his location during the game compared to where he typically is during a game. I'll let you explain uh, what the difference was between Scott Turner, the offensive coordinator, the last two years, and Scott Turner, the offensive coordinator, on Saturday. 
Scott Turner for the first two years here, and even at the tail end of his tenure in Carolina when he became the offensive coordinator, he called plays from the booth, and that was kind of you know, seeing that view kind of was how he liked to operate in the game. But during the preseason game, we saw him on the sidelines, walking around, talking to Carson a little bit, not as much as quarterback's coach Ken Zampese, but he felt like he needed to be on the sidelines for some reason. And I, I caught him um, as he was walking out of the locker room on Saturday afternoon, and I said, hey, wh- why the switch? And he just said, just for communication, just for communication. That's you know what we're trying to do here. So to me, it was, it was sort of an interesting response. I didn't get to ask him much more. Uh, you know, I don't know if this has anything to do with the change at quarterback, but to me, it is notable that Scott Turner has decided to make that move. I think it is too. I think it's notable too. I think it's interesting. And I didn't, you know, again, this was the first time that I read about it. Um, and, and I didn't notice it during the game. Do you think it's permanent? I'm not sure because I asked him, you know, I sort of asked him as he was walking out if he was going to continue doing this. And, um, you know, I didn't even, I didn't get an answer. So to me, uh, Scott Turner is supposed to talk this week. So we'll have a chance to ask him whether this is going to be a permanent switch. But if it is, that to me, you know, kind of prompts the question, why make this move? Because the offense last year, while it wasn't very good, I think it was inarguably better than 2020. And I think you could argue that, the starting quarterbacks that Scott has had wouldn't necessarily lend his offense to being good. And when your top tar- you know, your top acquisition and Curtis Samuels in place, basically I think a lot of things have been stacked against Scott Turner since he's been here. And when he uses a lot of play action, a lot of motion, he's sort of maximizing the tool, you know, or getting close to maximizing the tools that he has been given. So for him to say, hey, not only you know, after we've retooled this offense, am I going to make a change? That was a very interesting decision to me, and I hope that we get to ask him about it later this week. Yeah, because it's possible it's just experimental for him. Um, and, you know, early in his, you know, uh, relationship with Carson Wentz, he just wants to make sure that the communication is great. Maybe, you know, on Saturday at Arrowhead, we'll see him back uh, in the booth. You know, I was thinking about it after I read it. I don't know the answer to this. What percentage of offensive coordinators, play callers, call plays from the booth versus the sideline? I think the answer is a majority, if not a significant majority. What do you think the answer to that is? You think a majority call it from the booth? Yes. Yeah, I I would tend to agree. I mean, I have a pretty limited sample size. I only covered the Chargers before this, but Ken Wisenhunt, when he was there, he called it from the booth. And, and my sense just in watching games around the league is that the percentage is fairly high. I don't have a specific number, and I wish that were tracked, but to me, it, it just makes sense, right? Like, when you're the offensive coach and you're trying to see what the defense is, is trying to do, you will inherently have more or better information if you're seeing those 22 players from that booth vantage. Yeah, I mean, if you're a head coach calling the plays, obviously you're doing it from the sideline, you know? And I think about his father. I'm pretty sure Norv, when he's been in OC, has always been in the booth. And obviously when he's been calling plays as a head coach, he's on the sideline. Um, Yeah, I'm looking, as we're sitting here talking, I think it's actually an interesting question. I mean, I don't know why, you know... Uh, I, I would. I, I bet most offensive coordinators feel like they have an advantage um, from being up above. Uh, but who knows? Uh, what do you think? 
By the way, uh, last year, I agree with you to a certain extent, but what I really agree with you uh, on the offense, I don't know if I'm agreeing with you or not on this specific point. I think Scott Turner did well. I think Scott Turner called good games and good plays. I've been kind of a fan from afar, and I think with talent, he's going to prove to be a guy that can really do this. Do you have a sense one way or the other or not? I think this is the year where we kind of find out, though I will say that those hints, those early indicators where caveats abound, I think he has impressed. I mean, last year he had a quarterback who admitted that he was uncomfortable throwing left. He didn't throw a ton of passes left. If you look at the breakdown, I think only like you know 30% or, or lower than that went left. He didn't have great arm strength, and yet he deployed play action in motion to give him enough layups to keep that offense moving. And Taylor obviously did, you know, a lot himself with his legs, with his ability to improvise and making some throws. Like I'm thinking about that Cam Sims touchdown in in Carolina. But, yeah, I I think he has sort of made the best of these difficult hands that he's been dealt. So, And, and, you know, the nerds love him because of the, the motion and the play action and some of the, you know, personnel that he runs. But, yeah, to me, like, I think I think it'll be really interesting to see how he does with sort of a, a level playing field almost. Though I know that that might uh, not get some agreement from some fans, depending on their opinion of Carson Wentz. Um, you also wrote, and I think it was notable that we saw Curtis Samuel out there. We saw him targeted. Um, you know, more so than the rookie Dotson. And, you know, it was just a week and a half ago that there was some concern uh, about, you know, his readiness because of how they were kind of, you know, taking it easy with him, you know, with him missing some practices and uh, them admitting that maybe his conditioning wasn't great and that there were a couple of other injuries that were new. But I thought it was a good sign that they had him out there in the first preseason game. And not only that, you know, he got in a bunch of action. Absolutely. I mean, he had nearly half of his production uh, in the, all of last year in, in this one preseason game. And to me, <laughs> sort of – you know, even even more than just the the couple catches, I believe it was 14 yards. But even more important than that is, I think, what he allowed Scott Turner to do. Because if you watched it, he was the guy in motion most of the time. That was the guy that Scott Turner was saying, "Hey, defense, you need to pay attention to this guy." And and you know, he has the positional flexibility, he has the explosiveness, and obviously with Curtis Samuel, the question is always, can he do it again tomorrow? That's the question since he got here. And we don't know that, you know, we don't know if he'll play in Kansas City. But as of right now, it seems like the plan Ron has talked about is has been pretty effective because he has been participating in team drills regularly, not every day, but regularly. And he's been participating so far in the only preseason game. So if that continues, it, it seems like he might be able to put last year behind him. Though I'm I'm wary of being too optimistic because I've been burned a few times. All right, let's stick with the game on Saturday and stick with the offense. Um, before we get to kind of a Carson Wentz, um, you know, first gut uh, from his first game. Tell me what you think they're talking about. Just guess what they're talking about behind the scenes about Antonio Gibson's fumble and Brian Robinson Jr. looking really solid. Yeah, I think. Behind the scenes, it's probably a similar tone to what Ron Rivera had the podium on Saturday after the game. Ron yep. Rivera was, I would say, harsh. I would say, you know, that is probably the most uh, aggressive we have seen him, or most emphatic, maybe, that we have seen him 
in an interview about uh, you know criticizing a player in in his tenure here, other than you know I think a couple re- a couple notable examples from Haskins. years past. But yeah. this is I, yes, and I think that uh, I think that for him to come out and say he needs to keep it high and tight, he needs to keep it to the ground, and he can't dance in the backfield. He can't you know try to bubble things outside. Hit the hole, run hard, and get down and hold on to the ball. Um, for that, his tone really kind of struck me. And if you notice, Charles Leno and a couple other players went over to Antonio on the sidelines. I, I think everybody realizes yeah. what a big deal that is for him to put the ball on the ground again. And Brian Robinson looks good. I, I, he played one series. I, I think that that is a natural running back who has the vision, who has some of those, you know, just the, the built up years of reps that Antonio can't have. I think you see some of that polish. I, I would still expect Antonio to be the number one back, to be the guy that they want to flex out um, you know, in, into the slot to create mismatches against linebackers or, or smaller corners. I, I think they still want that. But when you see that issue bubble up that he addressed this offseason in Katy, Texas, where he was you know, carrying the weighted football around with him everywhere, I mean, he tried to address this. And then to see the same results, you're, you're, you're saying at what point are, are we – you know? Just repeating the same thing, expecting different results. I mean, you don't any you don't expect, and you you just said you expect to see him back there. But let's just say, I mean, I think he's going to get carries against Kansas City. Gibson, I'm talking about, you know, and a chance to redeem himself, like they did by keeping him in there with the twos on Saturday. What if he put the ball on the ground again? Could anything dramatic happen between you know Saturday against the Chiefs and Opening Day? That is a really tough question. I, I can't imagine after giving him as many carries they gave him the last two years, as, as much as he has done that him putting the ball on the ground again in a preseason game would ultimately merit a, a benching or a position change. Or I mean, that dude is still one of the only people on this roster capable of taking a screen to the house like he did against Buffalo last year. And you know, he has, while it's been imperfect, he has done a lot for his body to get slimmer, to get more explosive. And I, I just don't see them saying, hey, this really talented guy who might finally be able to put all of these reps together from the last two years and play running back, yeah, he's put the ball on the ground a couple of times. He, we can't, we're, we're no longer entertaining that possibility. I think they've invested too much uh, to give it away, even if he fumbles against Kansas City. But I think that, if he does do that, you start talking about, okay, if he fumbles once in the regular season, or you, know, you, you just put yourself on, on a very, very, very short lead. Yeah, I, I agree with you in that there are just a few players on this team, and you know, there are three or four of them where their upsides are elite, like star potential. And I think Gibson is – that in terms of his potential, but we all know as NFL fans, if you can't protect the football, you're not going to be on the field uh, with a chance to kind of realize that upside. All right, what do you? What did you think of Carson Wentz, and what do you think they thought of Carson Wentz? I think that Carson Wentz in three drives was probably he looked probably better than he had in any of those practices. I thought. He navigated the pocket well. It looked like he had good timing. You know, his time to throw, like the average, I think it was like 2.36 seconds. That, that's a pretty good clip. He was making quick decisions. Uh, he protected himself. I, I thought he looked, that, that was some of the best football I've seen him play over three weeks of, of you know, practices and training camp and, 
and maybe that's just you know a guy turning it on. But and, and I don't want to you know there were still a couple errant passes. Uh, but the thing that struck out to me was that out to Terry McLaurin, and, and the crowd got into it at that point because I think it was the only completion between Wentz and McLaurin. But he threw it out with with just the zip and the timing that that I have not seen um, from from a quarterback here in the last two years. And so at his best, he, he looked good. Um, I'm a little hesitant to buy too much stock um, in, in a preseason forwards, but I, but I thought he looked about as good as, as I could have expected. And obviously, there are still things to, to iron out and, and you know, ways for the offense uh, to improve. And I, but but to me, when Ron Rivera was talking about seeing the communication between Scott and, and Carson on the sideline, getting into a rhythm of play calling, him picking up the playbook faster, personally, what I saw. Than, than Ryan Fitzpatrick did. He looked more comfortable in this game. Maybe it's because he has better weapons, but it, it, it to me, looked fluid. And if you're an optimist, I think you saw a lot to like um, about what Carson could be heading into the season. All right. Um, let's flip it over to the other side of the ball. Uh, you know, you talked about their use of Danny Johnson um, as their nickelback. You know, St. Juice was, was out with the hamstring, which is fine. Uh, and he might be, and I guess they're expecting him to be kind of that fifth uh, defensive back, their starting nickel. Um, but they've liked Danny Johnson since the moment he's gotten, you know, since since the moment they 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 signed him. Um, he's been a guy that's always been on the field, and as fans, you're like, hmm, they really do like him because he's out there a lot more than you would you would have anticipated. There have been a couple of players like that. Um, so I'm assuming that you think that Danny Johnson is a lock to make this team and actually be a contributor. Yes or no? Yes. I think he will be a contributor. I think that there are reasons to not like his game. I think there was a a stop and go that he got got on, on Saturday. There was a third down, a long third down where, you know, he, he wasn't playing tight enough coverage and they got, you know, they got over on, he had another nice pass breakup, but when you think about Danny Johnson, it seems like they evidently do like him a lot, and I would expect him to make this team. Is there going to be a Buffalo nickel kind of player this year on defense? Yes, and I think it's going to be, unless Benjamin St. Juice is able to take a bigger role than, than I, I certainly expect him right now, I think it's going to be Cam Curl. When you saw them go big nickel sub-package, Cam dropped from safety to Buffalo nickel into the slot, and they had Derek Forrest uh, come play safety alongside Bobby McCain. Ron, after the game, said that they really liked Derek Forrest's yeah. physicality. He talked about about Derek Forrest in the way that he used to talk about DeShazer Everett. Um, and that was notable to me because Percy Butler, fourth-round pick at a Louisiana Lafayette, he was, he was with the second team. He wasn't playing Buffalo Nickel. He wasn't um, that safety with Bobby McCain. Maybe he can make a push throughout camp, but... As of right now, when they go Buffalo, it seems like it'll be Cam Curl there with Derek and Bobby behind him. Uh, that's interesting. I, I think also Derek Forrest, what, what you uh, – the DeShazer-Everett um, comp is a good one. And the coaches know more so um, because – it may not always show up in practice or in team meetings, but they see the limited action on the field and how physical the players are. You know, things they can't do in practice, and maybe they only do for a few moments on the field and a few plays, but they see it. And Derek Force is a physical player. In the same way, by the way, DeShazer Everett was. Um, all right. Uh, 
what else from the game um, on Saturday? What else, go ahead. What else stood out to you positively, negatively? Uh, I, I hate to say third down defense because it's a preseason, you know, a preseason game, yeah. but right. But, but when Ron talks about second and longs becoming third and short, third and medium, I, I did buy that because this is you know this is the sort of thing. I thought they did make some tweaks because on those third downs, you saw William Jackson the third playing press man, and I think that's something that you didn't see him do a lot early last season. And and you know we've talked about him getting more comfortable in the zone scheme, but it seemed like they were playing to his strengths a little bit more and saying, okay, you know, William Jackson, go take this guy out and then we'll play, you know, some sort of off coverage or, or combination behind you or opposite you. But they were saying, hey, our best player or, you know, our best corner, you know, go do what you do best. And, and it still wasn't working. So yeah, preseason caveat, but the usage of William Jackson and, and but in the repetition of the same results you saw last year sort of were, were curious to me. Sam Howe? On offense, summer legend. I mean, he looked really good. Uh, you know, leading leading that big scoring drive, uh, especially late. And I think that that was really positive for them because the day before or two days before the game at practice, they had him run a two minute drill uh, or a one minute thirty second drill from the thirty five, and he, the offense looked terrible. I mean, they did not cross midfield until they only had 22 seconds left. And ultimately, two keys into the end zone fell incomplete. So for him to show up and kind of show that in a game situation, I think was huge for him. And I'm not saying he'll be QB2. I'm not saying he'll start, certainly. But I think that was a promising development, considering some of the practice context that this team had. All right. Um, You were there on Saturday, the first ever game uh, for a Washington NFL team named the Commanders. What was the scene like? The scene to me was sort of a discomfort, sort of a a, a getting used to, a feeling out, I guess, of, of what this new team was going to be. I really saw the past and the present collide when in the fourth quarter they played Hail to the Commanders. And after a touchdown, and, and you saw people, I think kind of the new rendition is more trumpet, less drum, it's jazz. I think that people at first didn't realize what was happening after the touchdown. That song has not been played <laughs> in the stadium for two years. Yeah. And I think people were like, what is this? And then they caught on. And even though they were projecting the lyrics on the screen, you know, uh, fight for our commanders instead of Braves on the warpath. Uh, pe- people were still singing the old lyrics. And I think that, to me, going to be the uncomfortable coexistence of what rich history this team has and, and what the current administration has decided to, to, to make it going forward. And it, there's never going to be, I think, a moment where you'll have 100%, you know, uh, one way or the other as we go forward. But it, it was sort of it was it was an emergence from cultural purgatory of not having any fight song, of not having any of these things as they were the Washington football team before. So, to me, it was it was just sort of a out process. Um, you wrote in your column yesterday that they had an, and I didn't see this, but they had um, an announced attendance of forty four thousand eight hundred and fifty five. 
which announced attendance reflects the number of tickets sold. Uh, there obviously were not 44,000 people in that stadium. Um, I had people uh, who, you know, uh, people who were there for the Saturday night practice that was free that said there were more people there for the practice than there were for the game um, on Sunday. But I think you um, may have hit on something there. I, I You and I talked a little bit about this before recording this interview, but I want everybody to um, kind of jump in on it in, t- in terms of what we were talking about. Paid attendance means that's, you know, how many tickets were sold for the game, which incorporates the season ticket base and then people who just bought single game tickets. Now, there were Carolina fans. Fans there, um, you could see it even on TV. The you know the the, the the Carolina jerseys and the colors in the crowd, and there may have been you know a few people. Um, I don't know what percentage of people that wanted to be there for the first ever game and bought single game tickets to a preseason game. Although that is very unusual, uh, especially for uh, you know f- uh, f- uh, situations where you can get regular season tickets. You know, there was a day, Sam, um, a long time ago now, where the only chance people had to go to a Redskins game was to go to a preseason game. Uh, but you know, those days are long gone. But I, you and I were trying to figure out the season ticket base. And I think it was like 30,000, something like that last year. And I'm going to guess like 35 to 38 right now. What's your guess? That to me sounds like the right range. And if you kind of think about that attendance number, I sort of see it as a byproduct of, of larger mindset in the business office. We, we met with Jason Wright, the team president, before the game and he spoke very glowingly about the team's business progress. He said uh, this is their best year in sponsorship revenue since 05. They've renewed you know, 30% increase on their suite. They've sold more tickets this year already than they did all of last year combined. And so to me, I, I, asked, you know, I asked him, will you provide specific figures? And he said no, because he, he thinks that he doesn't want to get ahead of his team telling the story. He doesn't you know, want... Uh, to, to really pull back the curtain on the resurgence of the fan base because he's a year so away. I think that if you are skeptical about those things, you have plenty of, of reason to be, and I understand that, which is, you know, I think the thing that we're talking about with the 44,000. But if they really have made progress uh, on selling more season tickets, 35 to 38 sounds right to me because if you look at it, they averaged 52,000 fans per home game last year. And, and obviously you know, that they reported that. And Jason went on the radio. It might have been with you. I can't remember. But he said, hey, you know, it looks like there's a precipitous decline. But basically, that's because we were not telling the truth before and we're telling the truth now. Yeah. So if you believe that, and 52,000 were, you know, per game last year, and you could factor in the opposing fans, I would say that the season ticket holder base was probably somewhere in the low 30s last year. And if they have made the progress that Jason says they've made, then 35 to 38 sounds like the right range to me, and that would be sort of reflected in, in the attendance numbers. So that, I think, is where the season ticket base is at based on all the information that we have. Yeah, and remember that 52 was paid last year. That, that, was, that couldn't have been the actual 
um, you know, right. uh, average attendance. I think there were games last year where there was maybe twenty thousand in the stadium, and half of them were were the opponents' fans. But you know, remember the percentage increase game um, is is you know a nice way to present some forward momentum and some optimism. But for basically two years, you couldn't sell tickets because we were in the middle of a pandemic. And so, um, of course, it was going to be an increase from where they've been the last two years. Even though last year fans were back, there was a hesitance among a lot of people to still, you know, when you go back a year ago, August, September, to attend, you know, large gathering events. Um so that percentage was going to increase. Uh, I'm not trying to knock them for it. I, you know, I think they've probably done things and presented themselves in a much different way than the last group did. Uh, but um, I, I still think that the, you know, the the attendance number when we get to the opener, you know, is going to be a paid number somewhere where we saw it last year. But anyway, um, enough of that. Uh, Sam Fortier, everybody, uh, from the Washington Post. New Hampshire raised, upstate New York educated. Uh, Thanks for doing this, as always. Uh, Let's catch up soon. Of course. Thanks, as always, Kevin. Up next, to finish up the show, uh, there was other sports news from the weekend. And uh, there was, I thought, a jaw-dropping story about Jimmy Garoppolo. I had not heard this before. I'll share that with you right after these words from a few of our sponsors. College football starts a week from Saturday. The first full-fledged college football weekend will be uh, two weeks from Saturday, Labor Day weekend. But both polls are now out. The coaches poll came out last week. The AP today Maryland didn't even get a vote. I am very surprised that the Terps, with what they have coming back on offense and how good of an offense they, I think, have the potential to be, um, I'm surprised they didn't get a vote. I wasn't expecting them to be in the top 25. I wasn't expecting them to be in the top 30 or top 35 when you start counting the other teams receiving votes. But I thought they would have been sort of at the tail end of the coaches poll and the associated press poll where, you know, you see like right now I'm looking at San Diego state got two votes. Nebraska got one in the AP, um, in the coaches poll, uh, UTSA, UT San Antonio got a vote. Uh, coastal Carolina got two. Louisiana, a university that's not LSU got two votes. I thought the Terps might get a vote or two preseason wise. Um, but they didn't. So, Look, that is unfortunately a result of playing in the Big Ten East, where Ohio State's number two in the AP and the coaches poll preseason, Michigan's number six in the coaches poll, number eight uh, in the AP. Uh, Michigan State's in the top 15 in both polls. So, you know, and Penn State is just outside the top 25. That's the issue with playing in that Big Ten East for the time being. Uh, Maybe it'll change when USC and UCLA enter the league. Maybe um, they'll go to different kind of divisions or maybe just one big league. Who who knows? But when you got to play against Michigan State, Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State every single year, it's tough to end up in the top 25 of a poll. Um, I do think that this is the best chance since Loxley's been here 
for a seven-win regular season. They won six last year, won their seventh game in the bowl win over Virginia Tech. They've got uh, a start to the year, which includes Buffalo, Charlotte, and then SMU at home. Uh, They will certainly be big-time favorites in the first two games. They're 21-and-a-half-point favorites in the opener. They'll be a big favorite at Charlotte, and they'll probably be a favorite to win over SMU at home, even though SMU's had some good teams recently. And at 3-0, if they can start 3-0 over the first three weeks of the season, they would then go to the big house on September 24th to face Michigan. Uh, as an undefeated team, I'm not saying they would be in the top 25 at 3-0 and with those wins, but I think at that point they'd at least be other teams receiving votes, especially if the wins come with this high-octane offense, which I think it will come with. I think they're going to be really good offensively. I think they've got a chance. I understand they haven't been close against a lot of these teams in the Big Ten East, but I think Leah Tungavailoa has a chance to be, you know, an upper echelon Big Ten quarterback. They've got receivers in, you know, Demas and Jarrett, and by the way, Copeland, the transfer from Florida, and Jayshon uh, Jones returns. They may have the best overall receiving group other than Ohio State in the Big Ten. Uh, and, you know, they've got talented players at other positions on offense as well. Can they stop anybody? I don't know. Can they, when they have to run the football, do they, are they big and strong enough and athletic enough up front? I don't know. But I do know they're going to scheme up some offense with a good quarterback and very, very good team speed and playmaking ability on offense. And I do think they've got a chance this year to win seven regular season games, be back in a bowl game, uh, and uh, you know potentially win an eighth game for the first time in a long, long time. Uh, but I was surprised that they didn't get any votes. Um, before I get to this Jimmy Garoppolo story and, and one other note from the NFL's preseason this weekend, or maybe two notes, what a weekend for the uh, uh, Nats and Padres attendance-wise. How about the reception for Juan Soto and Josh Bell uh, coming back um, to D.C.? Incredible. I think it speaks on some level a little bit to what this sports town really is. We're a front-runner town, a bandwagon town with every team now, including the football team. It never was the football team. Um, and we'll see what kind of bandwagons created for the football team if they start to win. But obviously, you know, while the football team still draws exponentially more eyeballs uh, and interest um, than the other teams, um, you know, it is a shell of its former self. But with the other teams in particular – You need a star or you need a legitimate championship caliber team. And they don't have the star anymore, but the star was back in town, and that place was packed all weekend long. And I have friends that went on Friday night that said it was an incredible scene on Friday night for Juan Soto's return, and apparently the team handled it very, very well. By the way, this Minosis dude, Joey Manessis or Minosis, I think it's Manessis. He had two more hits yesterday against the Padres. He set a franchise record for 14 hits in his first 10 games. He had his fifth straight game of two plus hits in a game. That is the third longest stretch this year by any player 
in Major League Baseball, five consecutive games of two or more hits. He's hitting 400 too so far. Joey Manessis, maybe he'll become the star. Uh, they are calling up uh, C.J. Abrams. Uh, Cade Cavalli had a really good day. Um, but the Nats, you know, still, if you're not following where they are, um, especially since the trade, they they have not improved much. They are the worst team in baseball, and it's not even close. Um, they are 38 and 78, 40 games under 500. Uh, they have by far and away the biggest run uh, negative run differential of minus 210. Next closest, by the way, is Pittsburgh at minus 161. Um, but uh, they will play out the string this year, and we'll see what that trade produces, and we're going to have a chance to see that uh, starting um, soon with the call-up of C.J. Abrams, the top prospect in that Juan Soto trade, the 21-year-old shortstop um, who debuted with the pods earlier uh, this year. All right, um, I wanted to share with you this uh, this Jimmy Garoppolo story. Um, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo right now is still property of the 49ers, but he's not at camp. He's not at practice. They've already said, we are trading you, period. But a story came out over the weekend written, um, well, it was part of the Peter King Football Morning in America show or podcast or column. I'm not sure what it is now, but Mike Silver, remember him? He was part of the Washington uh, in-house staff last year. Mike Silver, um, who I guess is writing for the San Francisco Chronicle now, told Peter King that after signing his 2018 five-year, $137.5 million contract, he essentially became missing in action during that offseason. Quote, this is from Silver, from an unnamed 49ers assistant coach, right? He is quoting an unnamed 49ers assistant coach who was on the 2018 staff. Quote, after signing that contract, once he left the press conference, nobody heard from him for weeks and weeks. He didn't return calls. He didn't return texts. He basically just vanished. And we were looking at each other going, what just happened? Um, apparently, this was Garoppolo's move in the off seasons. You know, the CBA of 2011 allowed for players to have longer off seasons. Um, but you know, most of you understand this. Not everybody will understand this. Most of you understand that when you are a significant person in your place of work as the starting quarterback of a franchise who's the highest paid player in the franchise is, you certainly are entitled to your off time and your family time and your vacation time, but you're never, ever really not reachable. You can't be. When you are that significant in a company or an organization, you, you've got to make yourself available. Now, you know, if you're on some cruise um, you know, uh, where you don't have cell coverage and you let everybody know, hey, just so you know, I'm not going to have cell coverage for the next four days. We're going on this, you know, uh, Western Pacific cruise and we're going to be in the middle of the ocean. Nobody's going to be able to reach us. By the way, I hate cruises. I am not a cruise guy. 
Uh, the last cruise I went on was an Alaskan cruise. It was 44 degrees and raining every single day in the month of August. And it became very much like a floating food prison. Like just one buffet uh, call after another. And we were inside just waiting for the next feeding. I'm not a big cruise guy. But anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, Garoppolo, I did not know this about Garoppolo. I think it's an interesting story, if true. Um, you know, in, in the column, Silver, you know, kind of writes, it, it goes without saying that a, a different kind of work ethic is required to be successful in the NFL, especially when it comes to the quarterback position. And front offices and coaching staffs want their, you know, quarterbacks to be engaged all year round, even though the rules, you know, prevent meetings and practices and the other and, and, and lots of other things. Um, you know, the report kind of indicates that Jimmy G went, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, without, uh, you know, ghosted the team. Um, God, man, I find his situation right now to be fascinating, interesting, because where's he going to land? Where is he going to land? It's possible the 49ers just cut him and he doesn't land anywhere. You know, the idea that Cleveland would have signed him already or the Jets now with Zach Wilson being injured over the weekend for at least four weeks, although apparently the news is that Flacco is having one of the best camps he's ever had and that the Jets, Robert uh, Sala, the, the coach, basically said at one point before the Zach Wilson injury, Flacco is a starting quarterback in the NFL. And he's having a terrific camp. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, I, I if the Jets wanted him as a backup or if the Browns wanted him in the event that, you know, Deshaun Watson wasn't going to be available, don't you think they would have already pulled the trigger at this point midway through camps? Now, you know, basically midway through the preseason because nobody's playing this final preseason game. Washington probably won't play anybody, as I had mentioned in the opening segment. But, um, yeah. Uh, Two other quick notes from the NFL's um, preseason. I thought the story about Garoppolo was an interesting one. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens to him. Um, The... uh, the Cowboys in their Saturday night preseason loss to the Broncos, uh, they lost 17-7. They did not play any of their starters on Saturday night. One of the big uh, emphasis of the Cowboys in the offseason from Mike McCarthy was to become a more disciplined team. The Cowboys led the league last year in penalties, um, and the next uh, closest, uh, the second uh, most penalized team was 11 penalties short of what Dallas had last year. And that's apparently been a huge emphasis. More discipline, less penalties. The Cowboys had 17 penalties in their preseason game against the Broncos on Saturday night. That's a lot of penalties for any kind of game, even a preseason game. Uh, so that uh, that sort of it was something that I noticed. Also, um, remember Steven Sims Jr.? You know, big-time kind of punt return possibility guy and in the offense. And, you know, I thought there was a chance that Sims Jr. was going to become a good player, but he had a major fumbling problem, um, fumbled that that punt, you know, against Carolina in a big game at the end of 2020. Well, he is in Pittsburgh right now, um, if you didn't know that. 
And on Saturday night in Pittsburgh's 32-25 win over Seattle, he had one punt return for 38 yards. He also, also had a reverse rush for 38 yards. Steven Sims, in two touches, generated 76 yards of offense for Pittsburgh. Now, he didn't score a touchdown on either one of those plays. Um, but if you're wondering where Steven Sims Jr. ended up, he's in Pit- he's in Pittsburgh uh, with the Steelers. And in his first preseason game, he ended up uh, generating a ton of yardage. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. Oh, the other thing, too, in talking about returners um, and players that, I don't know, I thought Washington could have held on to. Let's not forget that the Chargers signed DeAndre Carter. Now, they did not use him. They didn't really use their starters at all. But he is going to be um, in uh, L.A. this year for a team that many think will contend for the AFC title. Um, He is going to be on that roster as one of the receivers, and he will be their kickoff and punt returner. You know, if Washington ends up with any issues on kickoff returns or punt returns this year, um, I think we, we we can look back. I mean, I, I I think DeAndre Carter was worth re-signing. I definitely think he was worth re-signing. Um, I think he provided them with a lot. Now, you can say with the return of, you know, with the return of Curtis Samuel and the drafting of Jahan Dotson, was there really going to be a spot at receiver? I don't know. I mean, if Dax Milne makes the team, wouldn't you rather have Carter returning kicks and being that sixth wide receiver? But maybe for him, too, there was interest. Consider the possibility that there was team interest, and he wanted an opportunity to go somewhere else. By the way, a beautiful place, uh, Southern California, to play with a team that is a legitimate contender. And with guys like Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Josh Palmer, but after that, an opportunity to maybe be the fourth receiver. And, you know, they needed a kickoff, a returner, and a punt returner. Remember, the Chargers have Dustin Hopkins as their kicker and now DeAndre Carter as their returner. Okay, uh, that's it for the day. Back tomorrow with Tommy.